To another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I'm here today to talk about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a passage that's reflected in a number of places. We'll be talking about it primarily in Matthew 26, starting Matthew 26, 36, um, but we'll also be hitting passages in Luke and John as well. I thought this one was an appropriate one to discuss solo because the nature of Jesus's prayer is one that is solely between him and God. It also brings up interesting questions about the will of God versus the will of Jesus, um, whether or not Jesus is suffering from a kind of doubt or if it is the humanity in him that's asking the questions that he's asking. So, Without much um, else to discuss, because I don't have a guest today, I, I'd like to just jump right in. In Matthew 26, 36, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So for some context here, they have just... uh, had a Passover with the disciples. They've eaten and they've drank and they've um, discussed. Jesus knows essentially at this time what's going to be happening to him. And he knows that he is in the process of being betrayed after the Passover um, in which Judas leaves early. He takes the remaining disciples with him sort of on a little walk. um, And uh, only three of them then further up the Mount of Olives into this garden. And the Garden of Gethsemane is actually uh, a a fixed place in history. This isn't one of those uh, blurrier kind of descriptors. There's actually a church where Jesus prayed now. And and recently, actually, I think a week ago, um, someone tried to burn that church down. And thankfully, they um, stopped him before he made too much... Uh, of an effect on the on the church itself and, and everything there obviously is so old uh, and so precious that um, I'm obviously uh, thrilled that they were able to uh, save the church. But it it highlights um, a really difficult, troubling issue of uh, nationhood in that area. Obviously, we all know that in Israel today there's uh, quite a bit of contention surrounding whose land it is, and um, it's one that I think um, just kind of exposes the worst of of every religious group that's out there. So again, Jesus has um, come to this garden to pray, and he says to the three 
apostles that come with him, can you just sit here and, and watch after me? I, I need to go have a minute. I need to go talk to my dad. And, uh, and I need to pray to God to ask him for, I think in this case, he's asking for mercy, which is um, difficult because Jesus throughout his life, as we've seen in every account of his life, he spent his time exercising mercy for others. He spent his time forgiving sins. He spent his time healing the sick and just generally trying to save people and bring them closer to him. And now he has to, or feels that he has to, pray for his life to God. So it's fascinating. And he uses the metaphor of this cup. Uh, let this cup pass for me. And cup is often used as a metaphor in sort of Christian dialogue about your faith or the pitcher. Um, this is um, a vessel that has contained all of the religious belief and the faith that you have. And at times it's necessary to have that cup refilled. And here Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't want to take this. But I think in this case, the cup is meaning the, the burden or essentially the task that he's been handed, not as much the, um, the faith that he has, uh, because obviously what he's asking here isn't a question of God's will necessarily, but a question of the necessity of the specific task that he's given. And as you can see, the humanity in us is fallen. We are made in God's image, but as humans, um, we are weak. And Jesus comes back to the apostles that he left to watch after him, and they are asleep. They've fallen asleep. The prayer didn't seem to be that long, but I'm sure they are so full of food and drink that they just couldn't help themselves and they fell asleep. So jumping back into uh, Matthew 26, 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is, I think, to say that Jesus believes in the, the burden that he is to carry, and Jesus believes in the task that has to be done. But the flesh in him is weak in that he is asking uh, for some way to not take this on, to not suffer in this way, which I'm sure we can all identify with. I don't think any of us would want to go through with uh, what Jesus had to go through, despite the fact that we were told time and time again that the sacrifices that you make in the name of God and um, the persecution that you face as a follower of Jesus or as a, as a believer in God is holy. And it basically assures your place in heaven. Uh, but uh, suffering is difficult and um, we're weak. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel suffering in that way. In 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. There's the number three again. Saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, To them sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus knows already what Judas has done and what Judas is currently doing, and he senses, he just has this telepathic kind of sense that it's it's going to happen now. I said my piece, I asked God for relief from this task. I asked God for um, reprieve, and it is God's will that this horrible thing that must happen happens. I think that the NRSV writing of it has, um, typically the NRSV you'll see has less header breaks. In the ESV, you get these sort of sections with a title at the top, specifically stating this is um, what happens in this passage. It's almost more like anecdotal feeling, whereas the NRSV has a much more fluid kind of prose-like approach to this. Uh, If we jump into this translation, Matthew 26, 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved. And you'll notice the ESV used the phrase, my soul is deeply grieved. That's actually closer to the Greek translation of it. In in Greek, it says, my soul is. Sit here while I go over there and pray. I am deeply grieved even to the death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Yes, specifically, remain here and stay awake with me. Um, Not just watch, but stay awake. Um, You're not going to be very good at watching if you're asleep. He goes a little farther. He threw himself on the ground and prayed. In the ESV, they say he fell on his face, which has almost this comical effect to it, um, which I think is supposed to imply the desperation with which he feels this, um, this duty, uh, the, the, the desperation with which he feels the need to be relieved of this duty, rather. So um, they use that phrase, although it sounds like he kind of trips. And in this case, it is just a sort of a prostrate, like I am, I am praying with all of myself. I don't know how you personally pray, but I tend to pray in um, a fairly relaxed manner. And it's one that in the Bible, they're fairly specific about. We're supposed to pray either standing up, eyes to, to heaven, or um, kneeling down, face towards the ground, uh, in the way that you actually see Muslims pray more often. And Christians, we do a lot of our prayer uh, kneeling, um, specifically in the sort of Catholic traditions, uh, kneeling and standing. But this fully bent over um, action is one of total surrender to God. Um, worship in the most thorough way, like you're not even worthy to gaze at God. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Yet it's not what I want, it's what you want. 
Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So that phrase is so powerful. It seems like it pretty well carries over into all the different translations. And, uh, and it's one that we would uh, do well to remember regularly. Um, the best of us is not our human body. This, the best of us is not our physical form. The best of us is in our spirit and in our faith. If we look to um, Luke uh, in Luke 22, uh, Jesus here is again, we've, we've gone through the Passover. Uh, we have uh, gone through the, uh, the meal where Jesus explains, essentially creates the sacrament of communion. And in Luke 22:39, he came out and went. This is uh, still in the NRSV, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, meltdown. So not only is he not on his face at this point, and not only is he not just facing the ground, but he just knelt down. This creates an image of uh, a little more of that sort of traditional respectful prayer um, as though he's having a conversation uh, with God rather than feeling this immense sense of woe. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We're seeing a reflection of that phrase, your will be done. As, uh, as it was in the Lord's Prayer that we saw in Matthew 6. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became the great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, this is a little passage that you didn't see uh, at, at all, really, in, in Matthew, this notion of, that an angel visited him during this prayer and gives him strength. So rather than he simply feeling dejected and trying to um, be relieved of this task, he actually gets an angel sent from God to give him uh, the strength to complete it and, and the understanding, I'm sure, of the magnitude of what he's been asked to do. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. So while in Matthew it felt like they were just tired and weak and maybe a little full, the disciples here in Luke are praying because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came and we're jumping right in. So this section where Jesus prays is a lot shorter in Luke um, than it is in Matthew. And it's even shorter, you'll see, in John. But I'm going to jump back to the ESV here for this section of Luke, because I think the, the verbiage kind of changes a little bit. In Luke twenty two thirty nine 39, in the ESV, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciple followed him. Then he came to the place and he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Not a time of trial, although a trial can be seen, I think, as some kind of temptation, or maybe a temptation is a kind of a trial. But um, the, the word they use here is temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed again. That image is mirrored in both translations, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was in agony, which made him pray even more. So the strength that he was given by the angel almost causes this agony. Or um, maybe the strength from this angel uh, causes him to cry out in agony, the agony that he's already expressing into 40, uh, Luke twenty two forty five, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, grief, sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus here is expressing a question of, I think, why it was necessary that he be killed. I don't know if this constitutes doubt. Actually, I don't, I don't really think that it does, although you could say that no matter what the case is, if you are asking God to remove a burden from you, you are in some way doubting his will. We have all expressed, uh, I think, these kinds of um, feelings to God in prayer if you pray regularly, there are things that you suffer through in life that uh, you would rather not feel, be it the loss of a loved one or um, some sort of persecution or some sort of discrimination. And that is oftentimes um, something that we pray about, at least I know I do and, and others that I know in the same um, in the same sort of groups as I am, or, or other Christians have have expressed these sorts of things, and some people feel as though they're they're put upon or they're persecuted in the world because because of their Christianity, and others because of who they are, who they were born as, or who they've become in life. So, what Jesus is asking here um, is clearly a question of God's will. But I don't think that it's necessarily him saying this isn't the right thing to do. I think truly it's just him asking to be relieved from it because of the pain and the suffering it's going to cause him. The voice translation, which as you've all heard me talk about before, is one of my favorites to kind of clear up a little bit of um, ambiguity Sometimes if I if I have trouble really parsing, although I feel like the ESV and the NRSV and really any um, translation that's a little more studious is pretty clear here. I don't think it's vague, but I always like to see what little phrases they insert into these passages. Oftentimes it's um, rather beautiful. The meal concluded. This is I'm just going to jump into 30 here. This is Matthew 26, 30. And then, of course, we'll go forward to Luke again. At Matthew 26, 30, the meal concluded together, all the men sang a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. We're going a little earlier here, but then we're going right to a late, a late evening walk to the Mount of Olives. Jesus says, Scripture says, I shall strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. Just so each of you will stumble tonight, stumble and fall on account of me. Afterward, I will be raised up and I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter's, uh, this is the passage where Peter is uh, said to um, be, uh, that he will deny Jesus three times. And uh, so, like I said, we're jumping a little earlier into the story, but I just want to try to give the context here. Peter says, Lord, maybe everyone else will trip and fall tonight, but I will not. I'll be beside you. I won't falter. Jesus said, if only that were true. In fact, this very night before the cock crows in the morning, you will deny me three times. Peter says, no, I won't deny you, even if that means I have to die with you. And each of the disciples echoed Peter. At that, Jesus led his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. I'm going to pray over there. You sit here while I'm at prayer. And Jesus, Peter actually comes with Jesus during this after just saying, I, I won't trip and fall. Lord, I am the closest to you. I'm so, I'm so with you right now. Um, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to go over there and pray. You sit here while I'm at prayer. Then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. And he grew sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He walked a little farther and finally fell prostrate and prayed. Jesus says, Father, this is the last thing I want. If there's any way, please take this bitter cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. When he came back to the disciples, he saw that they were asleep. Peter awoke a little less confidently and slightly chagrined. Jesus says to Peter, so you couldn't keep watch with me just one short hour. Now maybe you're learning. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Watch and pray and take care that you are not pulled down during a time of testing. Testing is used here, trial and temptation we saw elsewhere. With that, Jesus returned to his secluded spot to pray again. Jesus says, Father, if there is no other way for this cup to pass without my drinking it, then not my will be done, but yours. Again, Jesus returned to his disciples and found them asleep. Their eyes were heavy-lidded. So Jesus left them again and returned to prayer, praying the same sentiments with the same words. Again, he returned to his disciples. Third time. Well, you're still sleeping. Are you getting a good long rest? I love that um, Jesus in the voice translation is occasionally kind of um, sarcastic. Uh, he makes little comments that are very funny, even in other translations, but they really turn it up uh, all the way up to 10 um, in some of the, the passages in the voice. Now the time has come. The son of man is about to be given over to the betrayers and the sinners. Get up. We have to be going. Look, here comes the one who's going to betray me. And he sees Judas uh, kind of cresting the hill, coming, um, coming to collect his silver and betray the Son of God. Um, the voice translation from 22, Luke 22, does a little to uh, flesh it out as well. Although, um, again, because the passage itself is fairly um, plain uh, as far as the meaning of it, it is, um, it's not too embellished. In, um, we'll jump in at 39, Luke 22, 39 in the voice. Once again, he left the city as he had been doing during recent days, returning to Mount Olivet along with his disciples. 
or the Mount of Olives, I think is how it's referred to in the other translation. He came to a certain place, pray for yourselves that you will not sink into temptation. He distanced himself from them about a stone's throw and knelt there praying. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Then a messenger from heaven appeared to strengthen him. And in his anguish, he prayed even more intensely, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and returned to the disciples, he found them asleep. Weighed down with sorrow, he roused them. Jesus says, why are you sleeping? Wake up and pray that you will not sink into temptation. Even as he said those words, the sound of a crowd could be heard in the distance. And as the crowd came into view, it was clear that Judas was leading them. Interesting. Uh, interesting in that uh, in this translation, again, in, in true the voice fashion, everything is much more physical, palpable, audible, visual. Um, it's not like Jesus has a feeling. Uh, it's that Jesus knows what's happening and he is um, he's accepting it. There's a passage in the imitation of Christ that I, I found to somewhat relate to this in terms of being tested, being um, tempted, and ultimately leaving your trust in God, leaving, leaving the decision to God to decide for you uh, what you will face and um, trusting that whatever you face in the temptations and the trials or the suffering that you face isn't in vain. Man seeks, this is from the section that says uh, that all our hope and trust is to be put in God alone. It says, man seeks what is his, but you seek my salvation and profit and turn all things to the best for me. If you send temptations and other adversities, you order all to my profit, for you are accustomed to test your chosen people in a thousand ways. And in such testing, you are no less to be glorified and praised than if you had filled your people with heavenly comfort. In you, therefore, Lord, I put my trust, and in you I bear patiently all of my adversities, for without you I find nothing but instability and folly. So not only is the test um, what's best for us, but the test is actually going to be something that will be to our advantage in the end. Um, Jesus, I think, feels on earth during his prayers, uh, very much in his physical body, in his human body. And in this moment, he asked for uh, relief from his impending death. But what I think he is not thinking of at that particular moment is the glory and the beauty of him rising from the dead, his death as a sacrifice. And as he rises from the dead, the forgiveness of sins and the ability for us to be saved as fallen people, um, bringing Jesus to earth was an effort to improve the lives of everyone in the world. And in that, whatever comes of this trial, whatever comes of this awful thing that happens to Jesus, and it is awful. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have read up on the um, practice of crucifixion and how absolutely brutal it was, but it's such a terrible thing, such an awful, awful thing that happens to Jesus. But the end result is Jesus gets to go back to heaven and he gets to spend his time with the Lord. Um, he is 
you know, he's back to where he belongs in the kingdom of God. And he has opened now the door to the people of earth. And the only way that that was going to happen was the will of God being done in his murder and his killing uh, in the name of uh, his people. It's, um, it's really uh, difficult to, uh, to understand, I'm sure, for us, because we've never been called in that way to do something so drastic for other people. Um, sacrifice in the name of others is something I think that we all practice in some way as Christians, be it through charity or through, um, uh, you know, works to help others. Um, but the magnitude of this particular task is uh, certainly difficult to comprehend. So, of course, as Judas is um, coming close to, to Jesus in the garden and, and the apostles are there, Peter lashes out. Um, Peter brings uh, brings out his sword and he actually cuts the ear off of one of the guards who was actually a slave uh, that um, that had come to capture Jesus in John uh, I believe this is John uh, John 18 5 they answered, uh, uh, Jesus asked, Who, whom are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into the sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter is struck by fear. He's struck by um, this, uh, this feeling of being threatened by the guards who have come to capture Jesus, and he's trying to protect him. But as we know from what Jesus said about the flesh being weak, but the spirit being uh, strong, um, we don't need to worry about those men. We don't need to worry about those people. In The uh, Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer, in a section uh, called The Decision, he says they must not fear men. Men can do them no harm, for the power of men ceases with the death of the body. But they must overcome the fear of death with the fear of God. The danger lies not in the judgment of men, but in the judgment of God. Not in the death of the body, but in the eternal destruction of the body and soul. Those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. Peter's fear of man is what causes him to lash out. But Jesus's belief in God is what makes him say, Peter, put the sword down. Dude, you, you can't do that. I have, I have a cup and I've got a drink from it. I have uh, something to take on here that, sure, it's difficult to understand, very difficult to understand. 
these people got so close. The apostles got so close to Jesus. They ate with him. They drank with him. They were friends. Uh, he was not just a rabbi to them. He was not just a teacher or a guide or some spiritual guru. Um, you know, he broke bread with them. He was there with them through a, a, a chunk of their life, you know, a good portion of time. And he brought to them this joy uh, of his mission and of his, uh, his message. And so, of course, the apostles were terrified at the concept of, of losing their friend. But, of course, as, as Jesus assures them, this is what needs to be done. I know that this is a passage that in liturgy is often um, more uh, more repeated during uh, during Lent than um, during Advent. Right now, we're in the season of preparing the way for the Son of God to be born, and Jesus's birth, uh, which I will be discussing, I think, in next week's episode, is a miraculous thing. And it requires uh, a number of people, to a number, a number of wheels to be put into motion, a number of people to be predicting, to be calling for his coming. We have the appearance of angels. We have, the, um, we have a, a prophet being born, an Old Testament-style prophet being born to walk alongside Jesus in his earlier days. Um, it's a truly miraculous thing. And, and I don't want to minimize that by reading sort of ahead in the story during this crucial season for Christians. But I think that in preparing the way for the Lord, your faith has to be uh, ready. Your faith has to be perfected. Your trust in God needs to be absolutely thorough. Um, you cannot truly be ready for um, the uh, for, to welcome Jesus into the world as a, as a world unless you believe that this is actually what's happening uh, and a number of people as we'll see when we read Luke one and two next week uh, a lot of people really had to be convinced and some of them who doubted were actually punished in really funny ways but this passage or these passages uh, this. Um, this event of Jesus praying to God and, and asking, um, not as we often pray in worship or in, um, in uh, asking for forgiveness or anything like that, but he's simply asking to not have to die. And ultimately, his prayer is an answer. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered. This is something that I think anyone who's ever experienced any level of doubt would tell you that um, it's it's hard to continue praying to a God that doesn't answer your prayers. And what needs to remain in our head at all times, even when we're praying in intercession for someone else or if we're praying for ourselves through, through an immense time of suffering, that it's not always going to be the answer that we want. Sometimes it's quite the opposite answer than the one that we want. And what we, need to, um, what we need to continue to pray on as things don't turn out the way that we want them to turn out is that this is in the, uh, in, in the plan of, uh, for God. 
um, he has the ability to intervene, although I'm not sure um, that it is always and um, it's always going to be an active participation in our lives because of the free will that we've been given and because of the nature of, of evil in the world and, and um, the fact that this world is no longer the kingdom of God, so to speak, in that um, we have humanly, you know, we have human rulers, we have these humanly desires, we have these, uh, these urges that have led us to stray. Um, so in that, I think we will find that things are beyond our control. But when things do not go the way that we want to, we need to remember to trust in God. Um, because if it isn't the answer that we want, then it's some answer. And God will not forsake us. God will not um, lead us astray into suffering for naught. He, he is there with us when we suffer, um, even if that suffering can't be stopped. Um, so again, in coming back to the preparing the way for the Lord as, as, um, as uh, St. John the Baptist says in a, in a mirroring of an Isaiah passage, we're preparing the way for the Lord by preparing our hearts to accept that we won't always understand and this is about trusting in God versus trusting in man. This is about allowing our spirit to be strong, even though our flesh is weak. And I feel weak on, on, a, on a regular basis. I feel like I'm given over to um, desires that I shouldn't be feeling or things that I feel are sinful in some way or another. And I really try to fight it with my faith, not because I think that I'm physically stronger than the urges that I have as a, as a human being, as somebody who's fallen, but because um, because I I have faith, and because there um, you know there are greater powers in the world than than me, and sometimes I have to accept that the greater power of God doesn't always do what I want Him to do. I think I've uh, covered pretty well what I felt like I had to say about this passage, although obviously um, I may come back to this when I discuss the Last Supper a bit with another guest that I'm hoping to have on at some point soon. But um, this particular passage of Jesus praying is one that we should always remember when we pray. Obviously, Jesus was a model human in that he didn't have a sinful life. So we should look to how he prays and pray like him, though I don't think any of us are being called to um, be crucified. I um, have another poem this week, um, one that in some way connects all of these poems that I do. And, and I know this seems sometimes out of left field, but all these poems that I do in some way mentally connect me to the passages that I've been reading. And this one is uh, by William Carlos Williams. The poem is called The Rose. The rose is obsolete, but each petal ends in an edge, the double facet cementing the grooved columns of air. The edge cuts without cutting, meets nothing, renews itself in metal or porcelain. Wither, it ends, but if it ends, the start is begun. 
so that to engage roses becomes a geometry. Sharper, neater, more cutting, figured in majolica. The broken plate glazed with a rose somewhere, the sense that makes copper roses steel roses. The rose carried weight of love, but love is at an end of roses. It is at the edge of the petal that love waits. Crisp, worked to defeat, laboredness, fragile, plucked, moist, half-raised, cold, precise, touching, what? The place between the petal's edge and the... From the petal's edge, a line starts. That being of steel, infinitely fine, infinitely rigid, penetrates the Milky Way without contact, lifting from it, neither hanging nor pushing. The fragility of the flower, unbruised, penetrates space. Thanks, everybody. Oh, Father.